0: All right, those are the announcements that we have, and so now I'm going to invite up our guest preacher. Wait, no, no, it's me. It's me, okay. I, it's been two months. If you're visiting, it's been two months since I've gotten to preach, and it's been a great two months for two different reasons. One is it's been fantastic to hear those sermons from each of those different speakers, and, and it was such a blessing to, to sit under all of that teaching. So thank you to everyone who participated in that. It was awesome. I think it is now my favorite sermon series that we've done since I've been here. Also, it was a blessing because it gave me a lot of time to, to catch up from things from this last crazy year that we had, and then to get prepared for the coming year. But I am ready to preach again, and I'm very excited to be here with you now as we are starting a new sermon series called Colossians, and it's a, a type of sermon series that is new to me. It's a very common type, but what we're going to be doing is called an expository series, which means we are going to go through the book of Colossians verse by verse. We're going to look at the entire book. It's going to take us up until um, right before Advent. And we are going to just dig into this book and learn what Paul is saying to this particular church. I think that the, the book of Colossians has always been, as long as I've had favorite books of the Bible, Colossians has been up there. And it, there's just a ton going on in this letter that Paul is writing to a church he's never actually been to but there's good things that they're doing that he's been hearing about, and there's temptations that they're facing and challenges that they're facing that he's wanting to warn them about. And it all centers around the person of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is and what that means for who the church is. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a chunk of the book each week and we're just gonna look at what is Paul saying to the church here and what does that mean for us today? And so we're gonna start with the beginning. And I will encourage you, if you have your Bible, to keep it out to Colossians. Normally, we're jumping around so much that you don't just leave your Bible open to one passage. We will be bringing in a lot of other passages, but if you leave your Bible open to Colossians, we'll be referring back to that. And if you don't have one, there is one in the church app, and there, may, there probably is also one in one of the seat backs in front of you nearby. Um, so I will encourage you, if you are able, to stand for the reading of God's word as we begin the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Maybe seated. So today we're digging into this opening passage from the letter of Colossians, and we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time talking about Colossae, but we're really going to learn about the church and what's going on there as we go through the book. And the first thing that happens is that Paul addresses them, and in the Greek it's structured in it's two different addresses. He calls them two different things. The first thing he calls them is saints in Colossae. Now that word saint has a lot of different theological baggage over the last 2,000 years, but the Greek term, it's holy ones. And what it means is people who are set aside for God, God's people. So he's saying within Colossae, there is a group of people who are God's people. They're the ones I'm talking to. And then he describes them in another way, He also calls them faithful brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ. So they are the holy ones, the God's people in Colossae, and they are a faithful family in Christ. And those terms will be important as we go through and we look at what Paul is saying to this group. Now, he's writing to a church he hasn't been to before. He didn't plant this church. He hasn't visited this church. He has heard about this church from a guy named Epaphras, who is mentioned as the one who planted the church. And Colossae, just for a little bit of background, Colossae is a small town in Turkey, or was a small town in Turkey. And (laughs) I got this map. This is a map from Bible software, and you can zoom in and out. And it this far zoomed out, just to show you how unimportant Colossae was, even the Bible software doesn't show Colossae on the map this far zoomed out. It shows Hierapolis, Laodicea, Philadelphia, no no Colossae. As you zoom in, Colossae is here, but it's, it's still in gray in this Bible software. It's right there. That's Colossae. Colossae is a small town near bigger, more important towns like Laodicea and Hierapolis. And this town is so um, so small and, and kind of forgettable, there was an earthquake that happened not long after Paul wrote this letter, and kind the town was never the same, and it was eventually abandoned. And to this day, do you know what, uh, what Colossae looks like? like? I wanted to have a picture of like, the ruins of Colossae for the background of this. There are no pictures because they haven't even excavated it yet. It's a mound. It's just a hill. They, like, there's no reason why they couldn't dig it up. They just haven't gotten around to it yet. That's how small and seemingly unimportant this town is, even though it was the recipient of a letter that is in the Bible. So Colossae, not not a crucial town. It was relatively easily abandoned, um, easily forgotten. And yet for Paul, they were not easily forgotten. They were an important church. And they were important because they were a fruit-bearing church. In that passage that we read, you saw Paul celebrating the fact that the gospel is against all odds, against all expectations, bearing fruit all over the world as they knew it. It's crazy, and it's still a mystery. Uh, It's not a mystery to Christians, but it's a mystery to uh, historians and sociologists who don't believe in Jesus how this could have ever happened so quickly. It's never happened like this in human history that a faith started by one person like Jesus could just explode in the way it did. And so, oh, I put the slide in the wrong place. Here's Here's the hill. I thought I had a picture in there. There's the hill. That's what Colossae looks like right now. So you can walk over it, but yeah. So, but the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world and Colossae is part of it, a fruit-bearing church. And so as we, we as modern readers, when we see that, that should get our attention because we want to be a fruit-bearing church. God calls us to be a fruit-bearing church. And so when we see that Colossae, was bearing fruit, verified by an apostle who's saying this about them, we should be saying, oh, what does that mean, to bear fruit? How did they do that? Because that's what we want to do. So that's what we're going to look at in this passage. Now, it's tricky because we are hearing really one quarter of a conversation because Paul and the Colossians are talking to each other, right? And we only get what Paul writes to them. But this is also a later stage in the conversation Because before Paul wrote to them, Epaphras came and proclaimed the gospel to them, and they responded to it, and they became a fruit bearing church. And then Paul is writing to talk to them about it, but they already know the story. So he doesn't retell the story to them. So as we read this passage, we kind of have to reconstruct what happened in Colossae, because Paul doesn't, he talks about all the pieces, but he doesn't tell it as a story, he doesn't list them in chronological order. And so we're going to kind of reconstruct what happened in Colossae to make them a fruit-bearing church. And as we look at the passage, if you look at the timeline and, and the order that things happen in, the first thing that happened in Colossae is that Epaphras announced the good news about Jesus. Now what did that look like? Gospel, good news, is another term that has a lot of baggage over the years of different disputes. But in the Bible, the word gospel, the words good news, always refer to an announcement about who is in charge. Every time someone talks about good news, they're announcing the fact that a particular person is either now in charge or is still in charge. And it's usually because of the result of a battle. So in the Old Testament, you'll see people come to the king to announce the good news that his army won. so you're still in charge. In Isaiah, he prophesies about the good news that God is in charge. The Romans would also go around, like when they had a civil war, and the guy who would become Caesar Augustus sent people around announcing good news, Caesar won. And so when, they come, when the apostles come pronouncing the gospel, they are also announcing good news about who is in charge. So let's look at the first time that an apostle preaches the gospel at Pentecost. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus from the dead. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. So the announcement that they're making is that Jesus is king, and you know that Jesus is king because he died and God raised him back to life. Jesus is in charge, and if you look, when Paul preaches to the Athenians, he's, it's a famous sermon because it's the only time he preaches to a group that has, like, no Jews, no reference to the Old Testament at all. The basics that he touches on, he doesn't bring out the, the wordless book or those tracts that we often use that, that explain things in a certain way. He, he says, basically, Human beings are messed up, and God's been overlooking that for a while, but now he's appointed one person judge, so you should know him. That's, that's the essence of the gospel, is that Jesus is king, and that he is judge, and he is in charge, and that we need to know him. We need to be on his side. Now, that message has always been offensive. Offensive. Today, it is offensive in many ways, but one of the ways that we will push back against that is this idea that it seems kind of arbitrary. It seems like God is saying, I'll let you into heaven if you can pass my theological test. That if you, the question is, you know, because people will come up from different faiths, they'll be in line, and the question is, did you figure out that Jesus was God? Did you figure out that the Christians were right, or did you make the mistake of thinking that the Hindus were right or the Buddhists were right? And if you get the answer wrong on the test, then you go to the bad place. And that seems unfair, that seems arbitrary, it seems cruel. So it's it's offensive to us that God would say that you need to know Jesus. And I would say that if you hear the good news that Jesus is king and all that amounts to is a piece of trivia for a theological test to you, then I would humbly submit that you're not appreciating what it means for Jesus to be king. And this is an overlooked step in, in responding to the gospel. What Paul says here in verse... 6, he says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So Paul announces to the Colossians, Jesus is king. And some of those Colossians appreciated what that meant. They appreciated God's grace. Because the fact is that if Jesus is king, it's not trivia. It changes everything. Everything. It completely changes everything that we know about the world. And unfortunately, in our culture today, as saturated as, as it is in the gospel, we have, we have, it's almost like the amount of Christianity in our culture kind of inoculates us to the gospel in some ways. It makes it harder for people to grasp how, how important it is that Jesus is king. Because we take a lot of the conclusions of Christianity, we take the comforting uh, conclusions of Christianity, and we leave out Jesus. We think, oh, well, I can just still believe this about that the world works this way without believing that I need to follow Jesus. Let me show you exactly what I mean. Uh, in 1 John, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Isn't that wonderful and inspiring? That's something you could put on a greeting card? That could have been written by the Beatles, Right? Like, we love, we, we love love. We love saying that God is love. And we want that to be... All you need is love. And what I want to ask is, without Jesus, how could you ever reach the conclusion that God is love? Why would you ever think that God is love? Nobody did before Jesus. Nobody thought that the gods loved people before Jesus. That wasn't the relationship they had with foreign gods because they didn't see the evidence of it. Look around the world at all the things that God allows people to do to each other. And if that's the final word, if that's all there is, then how could you say that God loves us? My wife and I spent yesterday at a funeral for a woman who's about four months younger than me who died after a vicious battle of cancer and left behind a husband and three young daughters. And if that's the end of her story, why would we say that God is love? If that's all there is, if that's all this world is, then why would we say that the foundation of everything is love? That's not what John says. This is is not John Lennon writing. This is a different John. Because this John continues by saying God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. How do we know that God is love? Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Jesus was willing to die for us. God raised him from the dead because it was right that he should die for us. And that person who loved us so much that he died for us is now king. That's how we know that love wins, that ultimately the world is governed by the love of God, because God hasn't abandoned us to all the horrible things we do to each other. He hasn't abandoned us to the bad things that happen in this world, that there is actually hope for us, hope that we can be freed from sin and become better people than we have it in ourselves to be and hope that no matter what happens, us, it happens to us in this life, there is a better eternity waiting, that ultimately evil will not outlast good. And so when you hear Jesus died for you, and he's alive now, and he's king, that changes everything. I'll tell you what, here's here's one of the biggest pieces of comfort I get from that message. Because as Christians, we've all known people who died in kind of a gray area. A, a, A spiritual gray area. We want to be able to say, I can tell you exactly where this person or that person went. That's not really our role, it never has been. God's never promised that we would know exactly where everybody's going. But the comfort about this is, there is no one that we would rather have on the throne, judging the people that come before him than Jesus Christ. No one will be more compassionate. No one will be more loving. The hope is not in the the plan, like the contract that we have with Jesus, but the fact that Jesus is the one on the throne. That's the hope that we have. Not that we can say, hey, I signed on the dotted line, you have to honor my contract, but that the person on the throne changes everything because of who he is. And so as Epaphras tells people who Jesus is and what he did, and then says, he's the one on the throne. He's the one that's going to judge. Some of them realized that that changed everything. They appreciated what that meant. And then, some of them gave their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, the word that you'll find in your Bible is faith. We're written on all the words that have a lot of baggage in the Bible. Faith is one of them, because one of the ways that we think about faith, the primary way we think about faith, is the facts that you believe. I, I, or you know, Either it's, the fa- I believe in the facts about Jesus, or I, I believe that God will do good things for me, and that's my faith in Jesus, and that's... But that's not actually what the Greek word means. It doesn't mean believing in facts, and it doesn't mean believing good things will happen later. That's hope that we're going to get to. But the word actually means giving your allegiance to someone. Let me give you an example from a parable that Jesus tells. Jesus says, what do you think? He's talking to a group of people. He says, a man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered. But he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? Notice the question that Jesus asks. He says, not, he doesn't say which one of them gave their father the right answer. He says, which one did his father's will? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds and believe, uh, then and believe him. Now that word, believe, I've highlighted in red because it is the same word as faith. And what is the difference between these two groups of people? What is the difference between the two sons? It's not what they say, it's what they do. It's the fact that they choose to obey their father. One of them chooses to obey his father, and one of these groups chooses to respond to the gospel by following Jesus. And the interesting thing is, if you were to give a theology test to these two groups, the prostitutes and tax collectors haven't been to Sunday school or Sabbath school in a long time. They would get lower scores on the test. But they're actually giving their allegiance to Jesus. Because remember, the proclamation is that Jesus is king. How do you respond to a proclamation that Jesus is king, that someone is king? You either run because you were on the other side, or you submit. You celebrate, I'm on their side. I want to serve that king. And so, the Colossians, some of them appreciated what it meant for Jesus to be king, and some of them said, I want to be a part of that. I am convinced that there are people who will understand, there are people who understand who Jesus is and what he stands for, and will still say, I just don't want to be a part of that. They believe the facts, but they don't, they even appreciate what it means, but they don't want to serve that kingdom. To have faith means that we serve that kingdom. We choose to follow that person. And that leads to the next essential step in being a fruit bearing church and being a fruit bearing Christian. The next thing that it says is that the Colossians put their hope in heaven. He says, we thank, the God, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the allegiance that you gave him and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. So what they did and the way they responded had to do with the hope that they had in heaven. Now hope, biblical hope, is actually closer to what we often mean when we talk about faith. When we say, that I have faith, I believe that God will do good things for me or will do, you know, do the right thing, those kind of things, that's, actually, that's hope. Now, Oftentimes, when we use hope, we use it kind of frivolously. We use it like a guess. Like, I'm gambling that this good thing will happen. Um, which is a form of hope, I guess, but it's not a very solid hope. It's, and if you know people who go through their lives with that kind of hope, you know how much trouble they often get into. Like, oh, I, I hope it'll work out. Like, No, you really needed to sort that thing out. You really needed to be responsible. You really needed to put oil in your car more regularly. You know, those kind of things, right? Hope and hope. The Bible famously says that hope is trusting in something that you can't see. And so sometimes we think that it's just like throwing your hands up in the air and just, oh, I hope it turns out all right. That's not what this means. So the best example I can think of for what this is talking about is you use hope, depending on your generation, more or less often, when you write a check, okay? You use hope when you write a check because you have a piece of paper here. You're going to write a number on it, and you're going to sign it, and you're going to give to somebody, and there will be consequences for what it says. The ideal consequences is that they take your money and you get their product and everything and goes exactly as everybody expected. The negative consequence is you were wrong about how much is in your bank account and then it bounces and you get into all kinds of trouble, right? Or at least a fee, right? But you are, you don't, you, do, you can't see your bank account. It's not there. You're not pulling cash out that you have in your hand. You are writing that check in hope. A very informed hope, if you're good at balancing your checkbook, but in hope that the amount that you write there is in your bank account. So you are behaving in in this situation on a hope that in your bank somewhere there is enough money to cover that check. That's what hope is. Hope is when we make decisions in the here and now based on how much we believe is in our bank account, not sometimes your literal bank account, but but based on what we believe reality actually is. So what what happens, this is why I, I feel like sometimes we've gotten too focused on, um, tr- sometimes Christianity can feel like just um, a way to feel good about what happens after you die, and I went through this journey of really wanting to focus on what happens to us in the here and now, but the two are linked because what happens is you write your checks based on how much you think is in your account, and what the gospel tells us is that God has put, has put eternity in our accounts, and that changes the checks that you write. That changes how generous you are with other people. That changes how generous you are with your time. That changes how much you covet your own possessions, your own time, your own resources. It completely changes the math. To know that eternity is in our bank accounts. That's why we can say that the retirement plan for the kingdom of heaven is heaven. Because we know if you spend every day of your life working for the kingdom, you're still going to have eternity waiting for you. You don't have to carve your retirement out of the time you have on this side of glory. right? Because we know that eternity is in our bank account. That's what hope means. And so for the Colossians, their behavior is transformed by the fact that they are writing checks based on that balance. They are loving each other, they are taking risks. They are when when Christians went to the Colosseum and faced the lions, that was because of what they believe because they believed that God had put eternity in their accounts. It doesn't make sense otherwise beautiful picture of what this looks like in Paul's letter to the, his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh." For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Notice that when I say that we're putting our hope in what God puts in our account, it isn't saying, I believe that good things will always happen for me. This is not prosperity where we say God will always do good things for me in this life. What we're saying is, what Paul is saying here is that they can endure any kind of bad things in their life because of the eternal promises of God. That they can face the fact that bad things will happen in this life and not just the random bad things that happen, seemingly random bad things that happen, but also bad things that happen only because he's serving Jesus. That all of those can be endured no matter how they end because this life isn't all there is. And so they can live in this radical way that is transforming the Roman Empire in spite of the people in power. They're not even being consulted as the Roman Empire is being changed under their feet. And it's because ultimately that hope, the check that God wants us to write, and this is where Paul lands pretty much every time, is in the fact that the Colossian Christians loved each other. This is the core thing that Paul is celebrating in this passage. Because he says it at the beginning. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. And he ends by talking about how Epaphras has told us about your love in the Spirit. This is the fruit of, that he's talking about is their love for each other. This creeps, this comes up so frequently in the New Testament. When Jesus says. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That is the mission that he gives them. And when Paul does a performance review on the churches that he writes to, the most important thing that he fills in is their love for each other. He tells the Ephesians, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. To the Thessalonians, he says, We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. When he writes to Philemon, he says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. When he assesses the strength of a church, he does it, among other things, he always does it in terms of their love for each other. Because remember, the gospel is proclaiming that the God of love rules. He reigns. And there is a community that claims that all of us serve that God. What should that community look like? They should love each other in a radical way. And when we talk about the fruit of the gospel, what we typically think about is people becoming Christians. In 2020, there was this very um, popular podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It was talking about Mars Hill Church up in Seattle, and crazy things happened, a lot of unhealthy things in their church culture. It was very ugly the way things ended. But it was growing, and people would say, look at the fruit as a way to excuse the behavior. And what they meant was the fruit was all the people getting baptized, and that was an excuse for the behavior. But here's the thing. If you look in the New Testament, the term fruit... Never applies to people. I haven't found a place where it applies to people. Fruit is behavior. When he talks about the fruit of the gospel, he's talking about behavior. So, for instance, later in this very chapter, he's going to refer to bearing fruit in every good work. The fruit is the the activity, the things that people do, the way they behave. The most famous passage about fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Right, which is uh, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I got those out of order, but you get the point. right? Those are all behaviors. Those are character traits. Those are ways that people are transformed. The fruit of the gospel is the transformation of people to be more like Jesus. And the primary fruit by which this is all judged by Jesus' own statement at the Last Supper is love. The love that a church has for each other. Notice what Jesus says in, in that same conversation at the Last Supper. He says to the disciples, I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. That is the fruit of the gospel. And a fruit-bearing church is a church that loves each other. Now, you may be getting a little bit uncomfortable because you say, where's evangelism in all this? because what we don't want to do is become a community that's just insular and only loves each other and never connects with anyone, right? And we don't want that, but I would encourage you to think... I'm not claiming that this is how the Bible uses the metaphor, but I've been thinking a lot about this fruit metaphor. And I ask you, what is fruit for? What does fruit do? Biologically, fruit um, is how a plant puts... uh, It's how a plant distributes seeds, The fruit covers the seed. An animal eats the fruit and distributes the seed. And this is very similar to what Jesus is talking about in this very passage when he tells them that, that he wants them to bear fruit and that that fruit is to follow his command to love each other. Because later he says, he's saying a prayer to God on behalf of the church. He says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The love that the church has for each other builds the legitimacy of our message and is actually how we spread the gospel. So the, the, the gospel is the seed in the center of the fruit, which is the love that we have for each other. Love is the fruit that the seeds of the gospel. So as we love each other, as we create a community that legitimately reflects to people the love of God, That's what will make people willing to believe that God is love and that Jesus is king. Because they have to see it. So to be a fruit-bearing church, we have to be a church that hears the gospel, that appreciates what it means, that follows Jesus because of that that writes the checks believing that God is who he says he is and is going to do what he says he's going to do, and the checks that we write are radical love to each other. And through building that community of radical love, we create a community that can build, that, that people can be draw, where people can be drawn into the love of Christ. If we don't have the community of Christ to draw people into, it doesn't matter what kind of evangelism you do in your neighborhoods. If bringing them in here is going to make them, you know, if if they don't find Jesus in the community, they're not going to look for him there. But ultimately, what we find is that this uh, this approach of spreading the gospel is incredibly powerful. And it has been incredibly effective over the past 2,000 years. And Jesus tells a parable this way. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Now, Jesus was very good at speaking to his own context. I believe that if he was speaking to you now, he would not have used the mustard seed. I think, I'm not going to say that I can do a better parable than Jesus. I think that Oregon has a better metaphor than mustard seeds, okay? Here's what we are. I almost called this sermon the Blackberry Gospel. Because I believe that Satan feels about the church the way we feel about blackberries, right? Because, I mean, they're de- my, my in-laws struggle to believe me that they're a weed, But any of you who have tried to keep them out of a place, no, they are a weed. They bear fruit and that fruit is delicious and that fruit gets in the ground and you can never get it out again. In our garden, we didn't actually ever get it out. We just put up a little, Casey put up a little fence and just said, fine, you can have that part. (laughs) And that's what the gospel is. That as it spreads, as we love each other and and that that delicious fruit that is really reflecting of who God is and what God wants for the world, that spreads the seeds and those seeds create this plant that is just covering the world. The only reason why blackberries covered our planet is because there are other temperate zones, right? Like if the whole world was like the Willamette Valley, there'd be nothing but blackberries. Fortunately, there are no temperate zones that can restrain the gospel, and that's why the gospel is taking over the world. But if we're going to be a part of that, then we need to be a church that focuses on bearing fruit, and we need to be people who focus on bearing fruit. So I want to close by asking you to consider a couple of questions. As we take, go from Colossae to Turner, let me ask you, are you bearing fruit for the gospel? Are you living out that kind of life? Are you showing radical love for others? And are you part of a community of people showing radical love to each other? Because here's the thing. The gospel is not just about transforming individuals. It's about transforming communities. It's about transforming humanity and the world. You may be able to demonstrate God's capacity to change a person on your own. You cannot demonstrate God's capacity to change a community on your own. That's why we need to be part of a community. That's why we need to be part of a church. So are you bearing fruit the gospel. And most likely, your answer is going to be yes, but, and you're going to be looking at how much fruit are you bearing. And then the question would be, which step in this process that we've talked about do you need to work on? You've heard the gospel. If you've been here this morning, you've heard the gospel. Have you appreciated it? And if you've appreciated what it really means, because you could be a Christian and still need to work on appreciating the, what, it, what the gospel really means. That is a lifelong endeavor to truly appreciate how the world is different because Jesus is alive. And that, if you're finding a lack of passion for this mission, that might be where, where you need to work, is you're not fully appreciating why the news is so good. Maybe you need to work on the step of giving your allegiance to God because he's just not actually your priority. You're not actually obeying him as your king. Maybe you need to work on your hope because you struggle to write checks that you don't know, like that you can't cash yourself. You're only doing the things that you can pay for and you're not taking on the missions God has for you that he's going to pay for. And maybe you're not... Maybe you're struggling to take on that mission of loving others and especially loving the church. And that can be one of two things. Maybe you're in a church and you struggle to love others in it. Or maybe you're struggling to actually be part of a community. Be part of the church. Because you can't love the church if you're not part of the church. So all of us have places where we can improve, where we can be more fruitful. And the question that I want you to consider is, where do I need to work? And finally... What action will you take to grow as a disciple? How will you act on what you've realized you need to work on? And there are a lot of different ways that you can act on whatever it is that you're at. But we have these cards in the seatbacks in front of you to facilitate that and how we can help you with that. You'll see a red card. If what you need to do is connect with Jesus, you need to give your life to him, you need to submit to him as king, or you need, you need to get baptized in his name, or you want to commit to a church congregation, that's what the red card is for. Fill that out, put it in a box, or give it to me, and we'll follow up with you. If you need to grow, you need to learn more about what it means to be part of a community, what it means to follow Jesus, those green cards are the way that you connect with one of our small groups or our classes. And finally, if you know that you need to be bearing fruit by tangibly helping others, that's what the blue card is for. If you want to help out in our food bank or if you want to help out in the nursery or, or if you don't even know how you can help but you know you need to do something for others, that blue card is what you fill, in, fill out and put in a box. Now as we stand for our final song, I want you to use this time to reflect on how God is calling you to respond to his gospel and don't let this opportunity to take that next step pass you by. Amen? Let's stand.